few months ago, as you probably remember, the Suez Canal was blocked for six days. Hundreds of ships with hundreds of millions of dollars worth of freight were stranded, while others had to opt for much longer routes. Now, left waiting were companies and customers relying on all those goods sitting on the ships. As some firms were well-placed to deal with the crisis, others less so. Now, what's it take to be well-placed, and what happens if you aren't? That's what we're talking about on today's show. I'm Art Patnode, Global Content Director at JLL. I'm joined by John Gatorna, author, professor, and one of the most respected supply chain thought leaders in the world. And I'm with Michael Ignatiades, Head of Supply Chain and Logistics Solutions for Asia Pacific at JLL. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Art. Nice to be with you today. Hi, Art. Hi, John. John, kicking off, uh, you've seen it all in this industry, but I want to know what is on the mind of a manufacturer when something like the Suez blockage hits? You know, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot to process, but what is it that they're most worried about? They're worried about just getting their uh, delivery of their parts or their finished product to customers. So the first thing you do if you're a manufacturer in this sort of situation is you alert your customers. Because if you alert your customers uh, early, they can reschedule their activities and a lot of the pain goes away. Uh, while you're doing that, you look for workarounds. Now, it's probably a bit late to look for workarounds uh, when it happens. Uh, so we, you would hope that they've already thought through what particular scenarios they could follow. They, they may be able to air freight critical parts. First of all, they, they need to know exactly what orders are critical on those ships or on that particular ship. Um, you might uh, be able to look for local manufacturers to do some quick manufacturing. Uh, you At this stage, you throw cost out the window. You're more concerned about customer satisfaction because they're the people who give you the repeat orders. Uh, and you certainly start thinking about doing something better in the future, like looking for regional supplies, dual sourcing, uh, not relying on, uh, you know, a single source, uh, like in the case of this particular one where you might have had a source in Europe, bringing your product uh, through. So there's a number of things you'll do, but as I say, the first thing is to uh, advise your customers and then work with them as to finding a substitute of some sort. But I guess it's all about the customer at the end of the day, isn't it? It is, yeah. So what are these prepared companies doing that you mentioned? You know, I some people who have might have been thinking about these potential events, they're obviously going to happen at some point. You don't know when. What does it take to be resilient? Look, you know, the, the, we've got the tools out there and there's probably three uh, a spectrum, if you like, of, of uh, what you might do. Uh, uh, there's a software out there in the market now called DHL360. Um, and it's sold by DHL, developed by DHL, and uh, companies with control towers like uh, Snyder Electric have this particular software, and it monitors what's going on in ship, in shipping and ports and aircraft movements around the world. So you'll be the first to know uh, if something like this happens, and that's important. You don't want to find out a week later. At the other extreme, you might be planning for these sorts of things, and you build a network model of your uh network, your extended network coming from your suppliers through to your own network, and you start running scenarios ahead of time. You, you know, what happens if uh, a particular transport link is blocked or what happens if a port shuts down? And using uh, this technique, uh, which was developed by MIT professor Simke Levy, David Simke Levy, you can work out the time to recovery. This is the key thing. Uh, it's not so much 
worrying about the probability of these things happening because, you know, who knows? It's more looking at different scenarios like this particular one and saying, well, if that happened, how long will it take us to recover and what will be the cost of recovery? So that's the other end of the spectrum, the strategic spectrum. And then in the middle, you've got the economist and they're looking, taking the data route. And they're looking at analyzing data, looking at trends and trying to, again, use this as a methodology for uh, looking for, you know, key points that, that are going to be uh, uh, crucial, pinch points that might be crucial in the future that are going to cause our network to, to fail. So you've got companies, you know, embracing one or all of those techniques on different time horizons. Uh, and that's what the good companies are doing. Those are really interesting points. and But just hearkening back to something you mentioned as we got going here, which is that kind of regionalization versus globalization. And, you know, this has been much debated over the last 20 years or so. What does it mean in terms of being prepared? Do you need well, to have more locations, uh, you know, the ability to be a little to adapt to these situations as they arise? No, there's, there's no doubt about it. Well, the good thing that's come out of this pandemic, it's it's going to remove what I call a very bad trend in globalization, where procurement people were looking further and further and further afield for the cheapest source, single source. And this was stretching our supply chains and opening up potential for the sort of things we've just seen. Uh, so what you, and China was, you know, one of those single sources, uh, at, at, you know, at the heart of it. Um, so a lot of companies that, that were using China as a single source are now going to what's called a China plus one source or a China plus two source, where they will not only source out of China, but they'll go to uh, uh, Vietnam and they might even have a European source. So they'll de- you, regionalization in that sense is definitely coming. Now, maybe it may cost a bit more, but quite frankly, it's going to increase uh, the degree of resilience that we have. And Right now, resilience is emerging as a lot more important than cost, although if we get it right, uh, increased resilience shouldn't necessarily cost us more. Michael, what does this mean for the real estate footprint here? Uh, yeah, definitely. And it's interesting, the uh, the kind of options John mentioned, right, how to predict, how to forecast, how to be prepared. Uh, but at the end of the day, logistics uh, is the part of the supply chain that actually uh, it has to react to to the forecast, has to react to the actual sales on the ground, and usually they're the last to know, which means that the, the real estate, you know, where you are, what kind of warehouse you have, uh, what automation you have inside, is really uh, informed, uh, let's say, in the last minute. But actually to develop those facilities, you know, it takes a couple of years uh, to get, especially in Asia, to get all the the permits to to build these facilities there's a long complex process are those new facilities michael different than the old ones or are is it pretty much um, just a matter of adding supply to the system yeah definitely the, all new facilities are as we call them grade a uh, modern facilities and they are able to basically accommodate automation and of course, they are—they are, tend to be more sustainable, being able to install the solar panels, track uh, the energy efficiency. And but at the end of the day, though, it's uh, what is the demand and what is the regulations that is driving those uh, those developments. Uh, we do see even in China now uh, some of the biggest developers like GLB and Brookfield have partnerships to install solar panels in the rooftops and in, in most of the real estate. 
Um, some countries are more developed than, than others, uh, for example, Australia. Uh, so definitely everything that's being built is, is a modern facility. Uh, of course, that reflects the price. So if you want to fill the Philippines to, to get into a modern facility, there are not that many available and also they are uh, quite expensive. So they, there is a price to pay. So with all the changes afoot, are companies changing the way that they're thinking? Look, the, 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 the better ones are, and just linking back to the point that Michael made uh, in, in terms of that footprint, um, I've heard the expression uh, adopting a build-to-core strategy approach, and that just reinforces what Michael was saying, is that the good companies are just taking a complete review of their, uh, their footprint, uh, be it regional or global. Uh, you can do that by modelling. Uh, it's not just a question of shutting down uh, uh, certain nodes, uh, be they factories or distribution centres. It may be that you want to shut some and relocate some. A lot of these networks, uh, companies' networks, have just grown like topsy over the last 30 or 40 years, and there's been no real logic to tell you the truth. It's very often been emotional reasons why certain facilities have been put in certain countries. Now what we're seeing is a much more rational approach where we go out and we we look at the demand uh, for our products and services, work out then what facilities we need in terms of where to put our manufacturing, where to put our DCs and warehouses. And once we've got the architecture right, and that's important because A, we can save a lot of money, and B, once we've got that right, we can then start to underpin them with all the great technology, digitization technologies that's around now to help us you know, drive the, the products through those facilities. My problem with a lot of these companies who are a bit wayward or haven't embraced this strategic view is they're trying to bring new thinking and new technology in terms of uh, digitization to old, if you like, infrastructures and old um, uh, footprints. And yes, there will be benefits, no question, but you won't get the full benefit of that. So, uh, but to answer your question quickly, uh, the previous question, I think there's still um, a relatively few number of leading companies that are really getting it right. What's holding those firms back that aren't getting going at maybe the pace that they ought to be? Look, it, it's it, it's something that uh, people throw these terms around a bit and don't really know what they're talking about. But uh, in many cases, some of these old successful, particularly industrial companies where they haven't really had to have rapid lead times in the past. But now with the coming of e-commerce, what, what's happened with this e-commerce revolution, which has been exacerbated by by the COVID at the consumer level, that's now spilling over into the industrial space. So industrial companies and, you know, in in, in their customers, they, they could be uh, electricians, they could be panel builders, you know, they could be uh, uh, construction companies. They are getting more demanding with the lead times that they're placing on their um, on their suppliers. So, you know, the game is changing. Everything has speeded up. The the whole clock speed of, of, of it's not just in uh, consumer companies, FMCG companies and electronic high tech. It's now spilled over into uh, these industrial companies. And these old industrial companies, which are great brands, and I don't want to mention them here, but, you know, there's some great brands out there, uh, quite frankly, are held back by their own um, internal resistance to change. They just haven't got the people who can make the changes uh, that deliver to deliver the strategy that's been written down on paper. Uh, that's the biggest problem. 
Michael, are you seeing as well a similar difficulties on, on the real estate front with, you know, setting up the type of infrastructure that John mentioned before um, at the pace that's required? Um, so to do that, uh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of assumptions being made. So we help actually we we help uh, clients uh, do these kind of simulations where we are saying, you know, what if you have this kind of tenant stay uh, being a tenant uh, in your in your new development, and what will be the and how will that tenant operate from your facility? Uh, so again, that links back to what John mentioned earlier that. Um, Companies need you need to basically uh, do a lot of what if scenarios and simulate uh, what it would take to work from a specific facility and whether the cost to develop a facility uh, would be justified. Um, let's say if you go in China, 80% of the warehouse facilities are, are, I would say, grade B. They're they're not the the, the motor facilities we usually you know see in the news or. On photographs, they're they're not up to the standards, but the cost to to retrofit or the cost to to move to a new facility is not justified. So most of the times, uh, tenants, even multinationals, uh, end up staying in those uh, let's say Grade B facilities. Uh, so at the end of the day, it's it's all a bit of a it is a it's a business case behind everything. And and what men, and John, right? You mentioned before about uh, companies moving out of China or uh, adding more facilities outside China and production. And I guess that's a question to you. I mean, the in, in theory, it makes sense. But financially, uh, do you think this trend will really pick up momentum? Uh, look, just to answer that, there's, there's just two words: risk management. Uh, I mean, China, with its behaviour in the in the recent years. Uh, has become much more an unknown quantity. The financial, if you like, CFO influence on these decisions, Michael, is going to be less going forward. I think risk mitigation, risk management, even if it costs more, uh, is is going to mean that China's going to lose out uh, as a result of uh, some of the activities of the last uh, two or three years. Listen, we're almost at time up here, but I wanted to ask one last question. I know companies are moving slowly in some regards. And there sounds like they're in their defense, this is a complicated, fast moving area. But my question to you is, if there was one thing that they could do today to move the dial that would be make a big difference? I'll make two points here, if, if I'm allowed. I, I think that the thing to, going forward is that uh, companies have got to develop uh, ready, ready to run models. What I mean by that is that they've done the homework, uh, they've they've fixed up their data, their master data, they've built uh, network models, uh, and they have the ability to uh, run strategic models to work out the shape of their infrastructure. But they also can uh, run these models for tactical reasons. And the great um, the the great opportunity here is that if you have a black swan event and all your forecasting technology technology or all your forecasting methodology just goes out the window, uh, you can at least run models with different volumes of demand and and come to some assessment. I think the second thing is that you've got to come from the other end and you've got to start uh, building um, facilities like uh, control towers. Uh, we, we've mentioned Snyder Electric. They've got a network of seven of them now. It's taken them eight or nine years to get there. Uh, Unilever, the same. Um, the great thing about control towers is that they deal with the present. And But 
uh, if you the data you collect on a day-to-day basis can be aggregated and it can help you uh, to make more uh, tactical and strategic reasons when you have black swan events. Uh, the problem is that getting started in the right direction, and that takes leadership, it takes thought, and if you can do that, then you've got to be prepared to stay the course for six or seven or eight years to get the network reconfigured, as, as Michael suggested, get in new facilities, put in new technology, uh, you know, don't necessarily go for the cheapest and best uh, return on investment. You'll see the, the benefits start to build up after about eight years. This what I call the flywheel effect, that once you're, you're doing the right thing and you start to increase that that the, the cadence of the flywheel, it just builds and builds and builds. And that's what you want to see. But companies have to take that long-term view to do it. John, Michael, thank you very much for joining today. And thanks to all our listeners who tuned in. We welcome your feedback on the views shared here and hope that you'll join us for our next podcast.